0: Uh, Now if you are newer here, um, maybe this is your first time ever visiting West Hills, I just want to start by again welcoming welcoming you. We are so glad that you are here joining us. I pray that you'll be blessed by your time with us. Uh, But let me go ahead and start by naming the elephant in the room this morning. Some of y'all are really uncomfortable right now because of what you're seeing on the backs of the bulletins. You're squirming in your chairs thinking of all Sundays we could have come and visited West Hills for the first time. We just had to pick the Sunday when they're making people new members, when they're having these insider church business meetings, when I've, I haven't even been here five minutes and he's already mentioning the budget and, uh, and hitting me up for money, Um. Friday when I was at the gym playing basketball, I struck up a conversation with this guy, and I'm, I'm always trying to steer conversations in the direction of uh, faith, of the gospel. And so I, you know, I, I asked, so it sounds like you know, you're, you're new here in St. Louis. Have you checked out any churches yet? I'm curious. And he replied, you know, we tried a couple churches um, when we first moved here, um, but I swear every Sunday we visited, they were asking for more money. He said that it was like literally every sermon was all about uh, it was it was about money and giving and, and he said I saw right through it I got sick of it haven't been back to church since and so I just had to laugh I mean I, that's sad but I had to laugh because I said you want to guess what I'm preaching about this Sunday I would I would invite you to come but <laughs> so uh, I don't see Eugene here uh, so that's probably probably a good thing but. Um, yeah, visitors here at West Hills, we, we specifically devote just one sermon a year to this topic of giving stewardship. Uh, preferably, as is the case uh, on this particular Sunday, uh, we want to preach that sermon in the context of studying our way expositionally through a book of the Bible. And uh, so since March now, we've been studying our way through the Gospel of Mark together. Um, and God, in His sovereignty, because I promise I, I am not strategic and organized enough to have pulled this off, God ordained that Giving Sunday this year would coincide not only, like I said, with our new members recognition, with our annual members meeting, but also with our arriving towards the end at Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44 in our study. This is the story of the widow's offering. But before we even read the passage in a moment, let me just acknowledge that some of y'all here this morning Uh, like my new friend Eugene, uh, may have been turned off in the past, perhaps maybe even downright chased out of the church, specifically by how a pastor handled this topic of giving. So let me just be absolutely clear from the outset here. If you're new here this morning, your presence with us is gift enough. Uh, we don't. We won't stop you from giving uh, if the Lord so leads you. But please don't interpret anything I'm, I'm saying or doing this morning as a sales pitch for you. You can just file this message away um, in the back of your mind um, for uh, for when you eventually find you know your your forever church home and. Uh, where God is leading you. We, we pray it's here. We'd love to have you here, uh, not just because of the giving, uh, but, but because we, we love people and we love the Lord and we love to connect people deeper with the Lord, and that's what we're all about here. So we'd love to, to have you join our, our church family. But um, personally, I, I wouldn't give money to a church that I was visiting for the first time. I've, uh, so if that's you, please don't feel compelled to give today. Um, now, that said, if, uh, if, if you do want to know how we spend your tithes and offerings here, um, you can find our entire budget itemized for you at the info bar after the service. If you're curious, we want to be absolutely transparent and above board about uh, how we spend every dollar here, but you know, if you want to take it slow, date for a while before we get married and, and, and have a joint bank account, that's fine, that makes sense. That's a bad analogy because we do not require members to uh, <laughs> add us to their bank accounts. You don't have to add us to your bank account. That's a bad analogy. But um, So would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word? Uh, from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. I'm going to read it for us from the ESV. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen in front. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury And he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now bless the study of your word. God, that just as you uh, inspired these words, John Mark, to write them, uh, would you now inspire open our, our minds, our, our hearts to hear and to receive and to be shaped by changed by even a really practical sermon about something that seems really this worldly, like financial giving. Father, we know that uh, the roots of something like this go go way deeper than we often give it credit. Um, there, there, there is a lot of spiritual meat here uh, to be mined, and so we, we don't want the power and impact and weight of... Um, of this passage to be missed on us this morning. Father, would you, would you open our eyes to see what you would have us to see and uh, move our hearts to obey and respond accordingly. And for your glory we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Right, so for most of us, uh, if we've heard this passage preached or interpreted in the past, uh, we've been taught to view this poor widow here in, in Mark chapter 12 as the paradigmatic exemplar par excellence of giving. Uh, We read Jesus' words here when he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing. We read that as a clear commendation of her generosity and her selflessness. She's put in everything that she had to live on. And so we ought to be more like her. She held nothing back from, from the Lord. and So let me ask you, friends... How much are you holding back from the Lord this morning, right? Cue emotional keyboard instrumentalist in the background, now with every head bowed and every eye closed and every checkbook opened. It's time to sow your seed of faith this morning. Are you willing to give everything to the Lord? What are you going to hold back from the Lord this morning? Are you going to trust God completely to provide? You can't outgive God, right? The problem with all that is, Well, there are a lot of problems with that. Um, For starters, Jesus doesn't commend her in this text. He doesn't prop her up as the ideal giver. That's just not in the passage. In fact, I want to turn our interpretation of this passage maybe a little bit on its head this morning and suggest to you the exact opposite, that, that the widow here, and especially the rich people, putting in their large sums, serve as examples of how not to give. And uh, by the way, I'm I'm not alone or original in suggesting this kind of interpretation. I'm going to be borrowing, as usual, pretty heavily from John MacArthur's uh, commentary on this passage. He points out that even the narrative context of this passage suggests as much. MacArthur says, at first glance, the inclusion of this story about a widow and her offering is puzzling. The previous section uh, that we studied two weeks ago now, ended with a warning of judgment in verse 40. And the next section that I'll preach on next week resumes that theme in chapter 13. But Universally, this woman is presented as a model of dutiful, faithful giving, but Jesus drew no principle regarding giving from her behavior. The text does not record that he condemned the rich for their giving or commended the widow for hers. The widow is not the hero of this story, but the victim. Duped into giving all that she had by the false promise of the Jewish legalism that doing so would bring blessing. She is a tragic example of how the corrupt religious system mistreated widows. And that is what connects this passage with the judgment passages that precede and follow it. So, like MacArthur, I want to examine this passage this morning for what it teaches us about how not to give, and then we're going to contrast that with some exhortations that we find elsewhere in Scripture for how we ought to give. You say, wait, wait a minute. I thought that we were called to be willing to give everything back to the Lord. I mean, just look at the example of the early church in Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that they had any things that belonged to him, was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. But we might note that that is descriptive, that's not prescriptive. This is describing a pretty unique time in the history of the church. Scripture nowhere commands that this model of selling everything we own and laying it at the feet of the church's leaders is supposed to be prescriptive for the rest of church history. It was understandably necessary uh, in, in their first century context for the very survival of the church, but the same principle of generosity... Open-handed generosity might well take a different shape and application uh, in a different historical time and place like 21st century America. And for my part, as the pastor, I sure hope it does. Uh, As the pastor, if y'all start selling everything and laying it at my feet, uh, frankly, I don't know what I do. I, I don't envy these church leaders in the slightest who were serving. Not only as pastors and as preachers of the word, but as financial redistributors and caretakers of thousands of people. They're not only overseeing a church spiritually, they're basically overseeing an entire social welfare program, all in one. I didn't go to seminary for that, right? Um, No wonder by chapter 6 of Acts, they're appointing deacons to oversee the finances instead. And so praise the Lord for David Merchant and Dave Holmes and Brian Arvison. Uh, Brothers, I would probably be retired already if it wasn't for you guys. I I don't have the wherewithal to, to, to lead a church spiritually and financially. Even in the first century church, they weren't commanded to share everything. They just did it. There's no command here in Acts 4. They just did it. I felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to do so. But Here's the other problem. The practice of giving all your money to the church is already beginning to be called into question just two decades later around the year 50 AD when Paul writes his second letter to the church in Corinth. He wrote uh, Second Corinthians primarily to request their financial uh, help of the impoverished church in Jerusalem. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 8. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and on all earnestness and our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace, financial generosity. Complete it out of what you have. It is acceptable to give according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance later might supply your need, uh, if, if that should arise, that there may be fairness. In other words, Paul says it doesn't make any practical sense for you to give so much of your money that then somebody else has got to turn around and take care of you financially. It just doesn't make any sense. No, rather, each person should give according to what he has. And so with all that in mind, as our context... I want to ask five questions of this passage in in Mark 12, the widow's offering, and see what principles we can glean regarding giving. So question number one, when do we give? When do we give? Well, unlike both the rich folks and, and this poor widow who is made to be publicly shamed by her humble offering, we don't give when everybody else is watching. Not when everybody else is watching. In the middle of Passover week, with millions of religious pilgrims in town, and the most public place in town, the busy temple square, and the very public treasury box located right smack dab in the middle of the courtyard of the women, the temple seat, the chief priest and the religious leaders in the first century had turned giving into a spectator sport. And so what does Jesus do? In order to judge them and to rebuke them. He says, okay, you want it to be a spectator sport? I'll play along. And he pulls up a chair. And he sits down right across from the treasury. And he spectates. And he says, I'm watching. And you know what I'm seeing? I see a bunch of hypocritical, pseudo-religious fat cats who think they're all that, you know, patting themselves on the back, Said, you've concocted this whole system to make yourselves look good, publicly give large sums of money, embarrass this poor widow, but the joke's on you because she gave everything she had. She gave 100% back to the Lord. You gave what? A measly 10% tithe? You pat yourself on the back, you think you're something special? See, Jesus isn't looking at our total dollar contribution. He measures our financial faithfulness by the relative percentage of your income given. And so, by analogy, if I asked you what the fastest animal on the planet is, most of you would reply, the cheetah. And you'd be wrong. Because the cheetah runs 68 miles per hour, but, I said, fastest animal on earth, right? The black marlin can swim at 80 miles per hour, peregrine falcon can can dive at 242 miles per hour. So some of you who are really smart might say the marlin or the peregrine falcon. But you'd all be wrong. Because according to Jesus, he judges not by the objective absolute miles per hour or the dollars offered, but by what you do with what you have. And the South Californian flea mite can jump... At speeds of 322 body lengths per second, <laughs> which would be the equivalent of you or I running 1,300 miles per hour. And Jesus calls the cheetah slowpoke. They only run 16 body lengths per second. You and I run like one body length per second. So. <laughs> So Jesus takes this opportunity to turn the tables and to publicly shame these proud religious leaders who have deep pockets but shallow hearts. Because they've already redesecrated the temple that he just got done cleansing one chapter earlier. They they have rejected his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where he said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. They projected rejected what he said here. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so I know some of y'all are freaking out this morning because you're used to giving when we pass the offering plates around and your money's burning a hole in your pocket right now. And you're like, Ah, are we going to be able to give this morning? You are. We will take your money this morning, but we're going to do it a little bit more in secret than than passing the offering plates, at least just for this morning. Uh, we're going to have baskets on, on your way out by the double doors, if you feel so led to give, um, but just for today, for those who might be visiting, or maybe for those who might be like the poor widow in our midst, right? and, and frankly might feel just a little twinge of public shame every Sunday when they come, and they pass that plate around, and they have to pass it empty to the person beside them, because frankly, they should probably be taking from it instead of giving to it. That's what it's for. It's for them to take care of one another. For them, this morning, we're just going to make our giving just a little bit more in secret. And so on your way out, you can you know, drop your offering um, subtly <laughs> in, in the baskets. Come back in later when nobody's watching. Whatever you got to do. I mean, if you really want to give in secret, go online. Uh, we've got all sorts of tools these days that enable you know, <laughs> godly, biblical giving to set up recurring giving online, and uh, nobody, nobody will know about it except, you know, we have accountability and two people and all that. But, um, question number two, where do we give? To whom do we give? Well, once again, unlike both the wealthy and the poor widows of Jesus' day, we ought not to support a false, apostate, empty, gospelless religious machine that rather than leading people to the lord is actually leading people away from the lord distracting people from god in the case of these first century religious leaders it was all the extra biblical rules that they were adding to god's word their interpretations of the law, which they had decreed to be on par with God's word itself, to which Jesus says in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They presume to put themselves on par with Scripture itself. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. But friends, is the 21st century church all that different? And I shudder to think about some of the highest grossing, highest budgeted churches in America today and the false gospels that they are promulgating and proliferating. The prosperity gospel. This idea that the good news of Christianity is that God wants to bless you materially, temporally, in this life, and if you just have enough faith, and if you just prove it by giving enough money to the church, then God's like some sort of karmic vending machine. And your blessing is right around the corner, so get out your checkbooks. It's garbage. It's rampant in the church world today. But it's nothing new. It was rampant 2,000 years ago. It's really just another version of what the Pharisees had convinced people of in Jesus' day and what the Catholic Church had convinced people of 500 years ago in Martin Luther's day. God will love you more if you give more. That's the message. So let's just take out the trash this morning together and clarify what the biblical gospel is. The biblical gospel that we continue to and will continue to cling to here at West Hills, you cannot do anything to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now. I typed that line out yesterday writing the sermon, and I, just, I started crying because it's so true and it's so good. You cannot do anything to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now. Because unlike every other person you have ever encountered in your entire life, I don't care how great your mama was, my mom is better, and even Jill Duvall is a broken sinner whose best attempt at unconditional love was still flawed and tied in subtle ways to my performance. Listen, God is utterly unique in his unconditional love and acceptance and mercy and grace toward you. Because it's precisely because it's not tied to anything that we have done or are doing or ever could do, but rather he loves us because of what Jesus has done for you. That's the gospel. So you could give every last dollar you have or you could never give a single dollar. You could volunteer in the nursery every Sunday till the Lord takes you home. Or keep saying no to me when I keep calling you and badgering you to help us pull this two services thing off. I mean, some people just tell their pastor on the phone, no thanks. I'll just, I, God love you because I don't sometimes. I, I am a sinner. I, I do not love y'all unconditionally and all the same. but you cannot do anything that makes God love you any more or any less. That makes for a horrible sales pitch for a pastor trying to rally the troops to volunteer, to write big checks for the church. No wonder so many people have been led to distort and pervert the gospel. Makes for a horrible sales pitch. It makes for a beautiful gospel. And so here's my challenge to you. Where do you give? To whom do you give? You give to a church that preaches that gospel. Give to a church that has made it their mission, their vision, their purpose, their passion to reach this city and the ends of the earth with that good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because the world needs to hear that gospel. The only gospel by which people can be saved, from our inherent sinful rejection of God, and therefore our deserved eternal condemnation from God. That's the gospel we're going to keep preaching at West Hills. Again, we'd love to have you come support financially and otherwise the gospel ministry of this church. But if it's not us, find another church that's preaching it and give to them. There are plenty of us here in town, sheep amongst the wolves. Don't be deceived. The world needs the gospel. You need the gospel. We need the gospel. Question number three, why we give. Why do we give not for blessings from God, but for love of God? Why do we give not for blessings from God, but for love of God? It kind of goes hand in hand with point number two, so I'm not going to belabor it, but it's worth reiterating. As John MacArthur Once again, notes, according to the simplistic and wrong theology of first century Judaism, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Conversely, they saw the poor as being accursed by God. Further, those who were wealthy had the means to pay for more sacrifices than did the poor. They also could afford to give more alms and buy more offerings than other people, and the Jews believed that almsgiving was the key to uh, entering the kingdom. The apocryphal book Tobit Said, uh, It is better to give alms than to lay up gold, for alms doth deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. Those that exercise alms and righteousness shall be filled with life. And so first century Judaism, once again, had become the early forerunner of the prosperity gospel. Our wealth is a sign that God loves me more than others. And on top of that, the fact that I'm then able to tithe and to give back more money to God makes God love me even more than he already did to bless me with the money in the first place. And to that motive for giving, a uh, uh, selfish motive for giving with this ulterior motive, expecting a quid pro quo from God, blessings around the corner. God says, like he had 800 years earlier through the prophet Hosea to the apostate Israel back then, he says, I desire love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If that's your motive, you can keep the sacrifices, keep the offerings, if you think you can impress me, if you think you can exploit me, manipulate me into doing your bidding, into doing your will with your giving, if you think that's, that's how this works, that, that you're doing it to earn my favor and blessings, just keep your money. Because that's clearly what you think it is, your money. You've, you've missed the whole point entirely. We, we, we really shouldn't be using the word giving at all this morning. Do we realize that? We can't give anything to God. It's his. Psalm 50.10, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Acts 17.25, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's his. We don't give anything to God. It doesn't need to be served by us in that way, human hands. It's his. The better word really is stewardship. Stewardship points to the reality that it's his money already. We've just been temporarily entrusted with a little bit of it, and God wants to see how we're going to use it. Are we going to become distracted and consumed by it, fall in love with the gift and forget about the giver? Or do we remember where it came from, who it came from, and why he's blessed us with it in the first place? in order to be a blessing to others, to advance his kingdom for the relatively few years that he gives us to be here on earth and partner with him. If you know that's why you're here, to love and serve the Lord, then you're going to live generously. You're going to live with open hands because you know it's his anyways. You just want him to use it as he sees fit. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must then give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves who? A cheerful giver. That's why we give, how we give, because we're delighted to play some small part in the work of redemption, that God is doing here in the world and the hearts and the lives of those around us. We have the joy of partnering with others, a community of like-minded believers, pooling our resources as a church, one team, one dream, to make disciples of all nations. That's it. Starting in St. Louis to the ends of the earth. What a glorious calling that God has left us with and a privilege to join him in some small part in that effort. Question number four: What do we give? How much do we give? All right, Pastor, let's talk numbers. Let's get right to it. I know this is what you've been teeing me up for. Um, doesn't have to be large sums like the self-righteous wealthy people here. Certainly doesn't have to be everything like the widow. We already talked about that, 2 Corinthians 8. If a pastor today tries to convince you that this passage means that you're supposed to go sell everything, give it to the church, run, because that's called a cult. It's not a church. I'll just give you two practical, tangible principles of what we give, how much we give. Number one, as we read uh, just a minute ago in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. And so ultimately, it's between you and the Lord. It's not between you and the pastor. It's not between you and the church. It's you and the Holy Spirit. God's got to be the one to convict you, to compel you, and to help you discern how much you are being led to give financially. But here's the second principle, and you're in luck because I've used up most of my time. Um, already, and so uh, I'm just going to, uh, instead of remaking the case here, I feel like I've already kind of made the case, I think in a somewhat compelling way, biblically, uh, already recorded this in an episode of our Ask the Pastor podcast, and since I'm trying to drive subscribers to that podcast anyways, I'm going to make you go there to listen to my my argument, my pitch for why I think that the 10 percent tithe model is, is still biblical and is still helpful and useful for us as a New Testament people, as, 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 a, as a default kind of minimum expectation for believers, with, of course, again, the Second Corinthians eight caveat that some of us won't be able to give 10 percent. You giving 10% would mean that someone else's burden because then they got to turn around and pay your utilities for you, and that doesn't help anybody. On the flip side, for most of us, when it comes to most of us in the West County Church, the 10% minimum tithe suggestion is just that. It's a, it's a, it's a minimum. Frankly, we could probably most of us get by with giving far more than that. But So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for the podcast so you can have your argument there with the digital will and then you know, email me and tell me why you think I'm wrong and you know, the tithe was an Old Testament thing. We'll argue about it, but I, I'll win. Um, but Taylor, Taylor's going to repost um, the, that episode on tithing, so go to the podcast and check that out. And then finally, ch- uh, question number five, how do we give? How do we give? Verse number 44, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 again, not... Under compulsion, not under coercion, like the widow here in Mark 12, and not because you think it makes you holier than thou, like the wealthy religious elite in Mark chapter 12, but rather we give cheerfully, faithfully, generously, and yes, even a little sacrificially, because Part of the point of of tithing your first fruits, of of taking that top first fruit 10% out of the paycheck before you pay the bills is, number one, it's a reminder that God's supposed to be our top priority. God comes first. God doesn't get the leftovers of whatever is left over after I've paid the bills. But number two, tithing is intended to help us increase our dependency on God our trust in the Lord. So we remember the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10. Wealth is so dangerous because it enables us to be self-sufficient, or at least to have the illusion of self-sufficiency, and that's a really dangerous place to be. And so God does exhort us, even when times are tight sometimes, like they were collectively for the Jewish people in the days of the prophet Malachi, When Malachi writes, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. This was not a time in the 4th century, mid 4th century, late 4th century uh, uh, BC. This was not the the heyday of of David and Solomon when Israel was sort of at its apex of of wealth and, and all of that. Times are tight for the nation of Israel, but Malachi says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. We can go over, you know, blow that out of proportion, distort that into the prosperity gospel nonsense, but there is a sense in which God calls us to give sacrificially. Do we trust him to do it, to give faithfully? It's our our, our. Trust, our hope, our security in our 401k, or is it in the Lord? And so I'm pushing time. Um, I had intended to conclude by trying to help us think through uh, some practical applications, of how we might ap- uh, apply this text, and drill down past the principles into the practicals. I had some ideas for this. I was going to do, I had planned to do earlier this week, I um, ran out of time in my preparation even, um, but I had planned to do some math and calculate something I was advised to do by the, the folks at Converge. I was kind of asking them, you know, our denomination, Baptist General Conference, how do I, you know, I want to be real sensitive with the giving sermon. What, you know, what, what should I do? This was something they, they advised me to do. I'm, I'm going to be a little less heavy-handed with this this morning. Um. But Brian said, hey, you know, uh, go on, calculate where your members live, your regular attenders, where they live, specific township, Chesterfield, Baldwin, Maryland Heights, Creve et etc. The average household income for each of these townships, multiply it by the people in your church there, add it all up, divide by 10 for the tithe. I was going to try and calculate... Sort of a rough guesstimate for us, especially in advance of the business meeting afterward today, which by the way, you're all invited to. That's not for members only. So um, you're all invited to the business meeting, free lunch. Um, But I was going to try and calculate a rough guesstimate of what our total budgeted giving for 2020 as a church should look like. I give everybody here, assuming you're sort of, you know, law of averages balanced out that everyone's sort of in that average household income for where you live. If everybody gave 10% at West Hills, what our budget would look like, And then I was going to ask David Merchant to send out sort of of pre-end-of-year giving reports to each of you individually, personally, so you could see kind of where you stand as of right now, six weeks out, six weeks left in 2019, how much you would need to personally give in order to close the gap for your own sake personally. If if you felt so compelled after listening to the podcast to get to 10% as a family giving unit and to help us close our gap for 2019 and our budget as a church. And then I was going to give out sort of a planning ahead to 2020, giving a challenge and challenge you to be praying about how you can be more intentional, more proactive in 2020 with your giving. And actually have you, I, um, Pastor Gary had done this at the beginning of, I think, this past year, or maybe the year before, we did sort of a, a push towards why you should be with the gathered church in the coming year, and he had us you know, write on January 1 of, of 2018 or whatever, um, I will be with the gathered, worship with the gathered church on blank Sundays this year, we might still do that, um, later in this year, kind of looking ahead to 2020, but do sort of a similar thing with giving and say, I will give blank percent of my income in 2020 back to the Lord. Maybe you're at 1% now, or you're at 0% now, and 10% is totally unrealistic. Maybe you shoot for 3%. Maybe you're at 6 or 7%, and you really could tithe. You know, 10% is is not out of the realm of, of feasibility for you, and it would just re- require some some stretching and some reordering of your budgeting priorities but again i've i've mostly run out of time and i also want to be a little bit lighter handed with this i really do want to kind of just leave this between you and the lord i certainly would not give that to you and, and ask you to give it back to me so if 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 we still do you know do the right the number thing that'll be between you and the lord i'll just be you praying through committing you know, God, what are you leading me cheerfully you know, with a cheerful heart um, to, to help and, and give back and partner with West Hills and the good gospel ministry and the, the exciting things that are happening in and through this church right now. But again, I just want to encourage you to take these principles, these biblical principles and pray about how the Lord personally for you between you and him, how he would have you apply them practically in your own life, in your own finances this week, and in the next year and in the years to come. But remember, the gospel, it's why we give. We love because he first loved us. Nothing you can give, nothing you can do is going to make him love you one bit more or less. Because his love for you It's based not on what you do, but on what Christ has already done for you. Amen? Let's pray.